What page are we on? We must be page 14 in your books is an outline for tonight's talk. On the road with Jesus. I think I was in year five when I went on a camp. Um, Yeah, not like this, but much more fun. Um, Year fives, (laughs) uh, you can make fun out of anything when you're year five. I just can't do those sort of uh, energetic things anymore. But I remember we had a speaker at the camp, and he was the sort of speaker that any year five guy would just fall in love with. He was masculine, he was good fun, he had terrific funny stories, he wore costumes, he got us doing all sorts of active stuff. And the climax of the camp was a talk he gave from the story of Levi. Remember Jesus found this tax collector on the way, sitting in his booth, and he said, Levi, just come and follow me. Levi left it all, just walked away from it, and followed Jesus on the road. And he said to us, this bunch of years, we're probably all four to six or something in an upper primary school, all blokes. He said, will you follow Jesus? And we all sort of, he said, if you, want to, if you all follow Jesus, I want you to stand up. So about half of us stood up and we looked around and the rest of the people all stood up as well. <laughs> then he said, I want you to say, I will follow Jesus. And we said, I will follow Jesus. He said, come on, I, I want you to mean it. I will follow Jesus. So we all shouted, I will follow Jesus. And I remember going home feeling a bit pumped and a bit exhausted. Then it suddenly struck me, where to? (laughs) Where do I follow Jesus to? I was all pumped to do it, but how do I do it? It was easy for Levi, wasn't he? He just had to get up and follow Jesus. Jesus walked in front of him. He just had to keep in step. For Peter and James and John, it was pretty straightforward as well. Wherever Jesus went, they went in his footsteps, on the road, here, there, everywhere. But Today, how do we follow Jesus? Am I supposed to go to Palestine, retrace that journey from up in Galilee down to Jerusalem and see if somebody crucifies me? Can I really claim to follow Jesus while studying at Curtin University, Facebooking till midnight, driving my own car home again, living in the luxury of, uh, 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 of beautiful mattresses and three meals a day? Can I say I'm following Jesus? It's sort of unsettling, isn't it? Maybe I can leave my home and leave my job and where would I go? The Gospel of Luke was actually written by a man who never followed Jesus around on the road. It was written to a guy called Theophilus and for Theophilus who didn't either. He was a distant spectator of the events that that Luke describes, what Jesus did and said, his call for people to follow him. And we saw back in chapter 1 of Luke that Luke's primary purpose of writing his gospel was to tell it like it was, to tell what Jesus actually did and said, what was fulfilled among us. Not to get Theophilus to necessarily do anything. He doesn't say to Theophilus, you've got to quit your job now and head off to Palestine. Instead, he writes so that Theophilus and so that we can be confident. We can be certain about the things that happened about Jesus and what he accomplished. That Jesus was God's decisive intervention, God's plan to solve the human problem, to rescue people from evil and all its effects, the kingdom of God. And he wants Theophilus to know that it's really happened. This world is a different place now. It might look the same, but something has fundamentally changed. Evil has been short-circuited as Jesus bore the evil of humans in his own death on the cross. Death has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom has arrived, but it's still to be completed. 
we live in that overlap of the ages. How do we live as disciples in that overlap? When Jesus is no longer here physically, but his kingdom has begun and it will be consummated one day. Well, Luke chapter 19, this parable that was just read for us, is one of the few occasions where Jesus explicitly addresses this question about how to live between times. He gives a picture of what it means to follow Jesus when Jesus isn't here. It's a great little story, isn't it? This nobleman goes away to a distant country to receive a kingdom. That's literally what it says, to receive a kingdom. And then after he's received the kingdom, he'll return as king sometime in the future. Now, as Jesus starts the story, every person listening would have had a backstory in their minds. It was about 30 years before this, when Herod the Great, the king of, of the whole of the, uh, that area of, of Palestine, we call the Middle East, died. He sort of left his kingdom mainly to his son Archelaus, except Rome was in charge. So Archelaus had to go to Rome, to Augustus the Caesar, to be made king over Palestine. But his two brothers, they wanted a share of the action as well. So they sort of hurried after him, wanting to become kings as well. And guess what the Jews did? (laughs) They sent a delegation to Augustus saying, we don't want any of them as kings. Well, Archelaus was made not a king, but a tetrarch. He was given about a quarter of his father's uh, kingdom, and he returned. When he returned, guess what he did to those who sent the delegation saying, we don't want you as king? He killed them. Yep, that's what he did. So there's a backstory. People know something of what this story is and how it might turn out. But it's a story not about Archelaus, but about Jesus. This nobleman, this son of the king, who's given a kingdom by his father through his own death and resurrection. But then he's absent for a significant period of time before he returns to planet Earth as king. And the story for Jesus has two strands, two groups of people. There's the servants and the subjects. In verse 13, he summons ten servants and he gave them ten minas, that is one mina each. And he said to them, put this money to work until I come back. Our mina, our money, it's worth maybe $15,000. It's not a fortune, but it's a significant amount of money. When he says put it to work, what he's saying is, not invested in the stock market, see what return you can get, but use it as capital to start a business. And you could do something with a minna. You could buy a small plot of land and grow some crops and some veggies and make a profit. You could buy a fishing boat, get out there and catch fish and sell them and and make some money. You could buy a lawn mowing business and set it up and, and make some money. Now, it's not enough money for you to sit back. You've got to put work into it. It's the capital to get you going then with the hard work that you put into the the business and a bit of entrepreneurial flair, you can make a good profit. We're told in verse 14, though, the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was made king, verse 15. And finally, eventually, he returns home as king. And that's the day of reckoning for everybody. And he calls his servants to give an account and you know how the story goes, don't you? The one, one of them who'd received the minna gives him back 10. This is the profit I've made. And he says, well done. I'll put you in charge of 10 cities. Then the, the, the five, uh, one of them's made five. He gives that back to the king. Similar response. And then the third one comes and he returns the minna he was given and nothing more. And he gives a little explanation. 
explanation comes uh, in verse 20 and 21. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, the boss, the king, hasn't lost anything, but he hasn't gained anything either. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did, the, did you, that I was a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I didn't sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I, I would have collected it with interest? That is, basically says, your own words condemn you. But let's assume for a moment that you're speaking the truth. If you really believed I was a hard man, you know, you're blaming me for your problem, but l l let's, let's run with it for a minute. If I was a hard man, what would you have done with the minnow? If you actually believed that, then you would have at least put it in the bank and got a bit of interest. because you know I would have demanded something. No, it's, a, it's actually a whole fib. It's a lie. That's not the truth. The, the truth is that you are a wicked, lazy servant. You couldn't care less about my assets. You're not really a servant of mine at all. It's just a blatant lie. You've used my absence to do your own thing. Well, what does all that mean? It's not hard to see the parallels that Jesus is the king. It means, firstly, that there's a considerable time between the, 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 the king leaving, Jesus leaving, and his return. Time to grow a business, a, a sort of lifespan, or half a lifespan at least. And then secondly, it means that when Jesus returns as king, the people who didn't want Jesus as king will find themselves caught out. Now, that's a serious thing to say, isn't it? Because my experience of Australia, my experience of UWA and the other campuses in Perth, is that the vast majority of people do not want Jesus as king. They want to live their own lives. The idea of bowing their knee to Jesus and serving him as king is abhorrent. But he will return as king. In a sense, it's tough luck. You don't get to make that decision. It's made by God, not by you. Then there are the servants, though, who do recognize Jesus as king. They've entered the kingdom in the language of Jesus. They've signed up as servants. They've been trusted by Jesus with his work while he's away to increase his assets. But with the last servant that's recorded, there's, there's this pretty unsubtle warning. That servant is exposed as really being at heart not a servant of the king. It's unsettling, isn't it? And it's meant to be unsettling. Read verse 26. I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. He has got nothing, and yet even what he's got is taken away. He's in a worse position than if, if he'd never had anything. That leaves a couple of critical questions, I think. What are the king's assets? That is, what is it that the king wants when he comes back? What is an increase to his assets that us by our labours might be able to achieve? What is he wanting to be given when he returns? Does he want us to have big, fat bank accounts so he can see the million dollars and collect lots and lots of money? I very much doubt it. Does he want to see lots of sporting trophies in the pool room uh, just waiting for him to come and inspect or more degrees on the wall? I suspect not. What does it mean to follow Jesus when he isn't here? Well, there's an obvious way to answer the question. That is to just ask, well, what was Jesus' mission when he was here? 
And that's what we explored last night. That's very clear, isn't it? What did he come for? What did he give his life for? To seek and to save the lost, to find the lost, to save the lost. That is, if you want to put it really, really starkly and bluntly, it's people. They're the asset Jesus wants, a people for his kingdom, populated with many, many people. Now, that's sort of so obvious, but it's not that obvious either, is it? I I did engineering at university. I finished high school. I, I didn't have that strong an idea what I wanted to do, but engineering was attractive. I wasn't too bad at the maths and science, but my main motivation to do engineering, and those of you who know me know how much sense this makes, I wanted nothing to do with people. Because people are a hassle, aren't they? They, they never do what you expect. They let you down. They, they're always changing their minds. It, machines are predictable. You can control them. You can program them. You can get them to do what you want. So engineering suited me to a T. Engineers here? Yep, you agree, don't you? In my third year, I went to, to uni as a Christian. In my third year at uni, I started to hear and listen to the scriptures a bit more closely. I started to take them a bit more seriously. And you know what I discovered? God loves people. What a shock. I mean, why didn't I work that out before? Like, it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus did not die for machines. He died for people. What is it that Jesus loves? It's people. Raucous, unpredictable, hassle, yes. That's exactly why he died for us. He loves people. At the end of Luke's Gospel... Come with me to the last chapter. Jesus meets with his disciples after his resurrection. And he says to them in verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Chapter 24, verse 44. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise uh, from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So he says, these things must happen. I must die and rise again. And we can't do that. Only Jesus can do that bit. And he's done it. But what now? What must happen now? Repentance and forgiveness of sins proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now, It's not hard to see that in one sense the hard work's been done, hasn't it? Jesus did the dying and rising again. He paid for the sins of humanity. He's risen again to be king. He's purchased forgiveness. He's now king over all peoples. And he purchased forgiveness not for a few select people living in Netherlands, but for all the peoples of the world. Remember Genesis 12? God chose Abraham, not because Abraham was a terrific guy and God just wanted to have a little pally thing with him. No, he did that so that through Abraham he could bless all the nations of the world. People in Yemen and China and India and Australia, Netherlands, yes, UWA, yes, but all the nations of the world. And so Jesus says the program now is repentance and forgiveness proclaimed to all nations. Jesus is king, so repent. Jesus died for your sins. You can be forgiven in order to save people. Pretty hard to be saved if you don't know, if no one will tell them. But Jesus, there's another parable in Luke's Gospel that gives us another way of thinking about this between times. Jesus, not only someone to follow on the road, but in this parable, 
He assumes that his disciples will be living a sort of normal life in their communities, getting on with life in different sorts of ways. It's in chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. And like many of Jesus' parables, it's got a bit of a shock in the middle of it. Let's get it going. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So rich man, lots of land, lots of money. He's got a manager to look after all his property and all his investments, who's been wasting it. That is, he's corrupt. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. You're about to get sacked. The manager said to himself, what do I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. That is, catastrophe is about to hit. His whole life is about to get turned upside down. His world is falling apart. There's this gap, though, between being told it's going to fall apart and the crisis actually coming, the axe falling on his life. In verse 4, he comes up with a plan of what to do in that between time. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. See what he's doing? He's saying, scrub out the 900, write 450 instead. That's a 50% deduction. Uh, next guy, uh, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he said. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. A big deduction again. Now, what do you expect the boss to do at this point? Well, he was just going to fire him, wasn't he? I suspect now he's going to throw him in prison. This is scandalous. This is corruption gone mad, isn't it? He's using his master's money for his own benefit when he's got no right to do it. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. You find that a bit puzzling? How could the master commend him for that sort of behaviour? But notice he doesn't commend him for being honest. He doesn't commend him for his faithfulness, but for his shrewdness, for his canniness, for his smarts. He probably still fired him, but he commended him for his shrewdness. Now, what's so shrewd about him? Well, let's put it in two steps. The first thing was he really believed that a dramatic change was coming. He heard he was going to be fired, and he said, I've got to do something about it. It's going to usher in a whole new world for me. I better prepare for that new world. That, in that sense, it was, it was an emergency. He faced ruin. He didn't sort of sit there hoping, well, you know, things normally turn out okay. Maybe if I just weather the storm, it'll, it'll be right. No, she'll be right, mate. That's the Aussie sort of way of dealing with catastrophe, isn't it? Now he faces it, really. Secondly, he devised a clever strategy for the change. He went to try and win some influential friends. He knew his job wouldn't last very much longer, but friends who knew him, friends who owed him, would last into the new world when he, he didn't have a job anymore. And, and uh, the, the manager comments at the end of verse 8, uh, sorry, Jesus comments, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. He says, non-Christians are often smarter about money than Christians are. They realise that money is really a commodity. It's a commodity you can use for other sorts of goods. 
Some of you may have heard of Bill and Melinda Gates. Heard of them? They've started the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which you may have heard of as well. They've pumped in, at this stage, I think it is $28 billion. Because they've realised that that sort of money can do incredible things. It can eradicate malaria, probably, from the whole planet. It can er eradicate many of the diseases that uh, kill children in third world countries. They're pumping billions and billions of dollars into research, into programs like that. They've realised that, well, if you die with $28 billion, so what? You die. But you can use it for something that is worthwhile in this world. Non-Christians realise that. And Jesus says we Christians sometimes don't realise it. Sometimes we, we, we're not smart enough. We don't see clearly what money is about. And in verse 9, he makes the point, I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. When will money be gone? When Jesus returns. That's when. There's a day coming when money and possessions will be gone. The Australian dollar will be devalued. Now, I know it's been sort of, you know, it's gone from a dollar US to 72 cents or something US and some of us are feeling the pinch because we like to buy stuff on eBay from overseas and and, and it's been developed. But what if the Australian dollar went straight to zero? Because that's what's going to happen when Jesus returns. It'll be worth zip. And everything else that you might own will be worth zip. And you can't take it with you. Shrouds don't have pockets. There's no ATMs in the age to come. It will be a major change when Jesus returns, when the king comes. So what do you do with your money? Well, I guess you could say, let's just spend, spend, spend. <laughs> let's make sure at the end of our lives we've got no money left. Well, that's what my generation's doing, isn't it? We're retiring early. We're spending all the inheritance. So our kids get nothing. We're going on world cruises. We're, we're um, buying our boats. We're, we're just doing all that sort of stuff. That assumes money, though, can do nothing that lasts beyond this age. But Jesus says it can. It can gain friends that last beyond this age. Because the currency of the age to come is what? It's people. It's not dollars. It's not cars. It's people. And so Jesus is encouraging us to use money, exchange it in a sense, for people. Much better than spending and have nothing left. Use it to make friends of people. Now, it's, a, it's a sort of cryptic way of saying you can use it to see people in the age to come, in the kingdom when Jesus returns. Use money now so it has that effect then. Because money is an incredibly useful commodity. Money can help Pete and Mel church plant in Beijing, proclaim repentance and faith to the millions of people that they might come in contact with over the next 30 years in Beijing and around it and see some of those people, in fact, many of those people saved because you support them with some of your money. Money can buy Bibles to be distributed in prison so people locked away and got nothing better to do than sit down and read, might read the Gospel of Luke and meet Jesus and put their trust in him. Money can sponsor kids to go on camps where they hear about Jesus, can pay for you as a leader to go on a camp where you'll tell them about Jesus. Money can do lots and lots of things to gain friends, to have people on the last day in the kingdom because of your money. About Four years ago, I got a phone call out of the blue from a guy I'd heard of but didn't know. He rang me up and said, Tim, I know we don't know each other very much, but um, I've become convinced that um, uh, training some pastors in Africa 
in training MTS apprentices would be a really strategic move. Would you be willing to move to Africa and do that? I'll pay for it. And immediately in my mind, I thought, what's that going to cost? Now, that, that's maybe something like with travel and other training, $100,000 a year. Um, I found out a little bit of his backstory. He did engineering at uni, uh, did a PhD. In his PhD, he invented he, uh, a, a process for mineral processing um, that he now develops and markets around the world to mining companies. Small little company, family business, makes a good profit. He churns almost all that profit into Christian ministry. All sorts of different projects he gets involved in. And it's not that he sits back and waits for people to come and ask him. He is on the front foot trying to find somebody to go and do this project. He was willing to put in about $100,000 a year to see it happen. And it's just one project that he's involved in. Now, he's got to spend a fair bit of time in his work developing the business to make sure it still makes a profit. But he spends at least as much time trying to develop gospel projects I remember chatting to him one day. We met up at the airport because we wanted to chat about that the project developed a different way. I did some fly-in, fly-out in Liberia. And as we chatted, he said, I'd love to be doing what you're doing, but God hasn't given me those gifts. So I'm willing to put money in so you can do it. So people that God has gifted in that area, they can do it. So he's realized that money is a commodity that can be used for the kingdom of Jesus. Andrew Forrest, you know, Twiggy Forrest, Fortescue fame, he's on public record of saying that when he dies, his plan is that his, the last check that he writes will bounce. Now, do you know what a check is? Okay, before you just did it on transfers, people would write checks when they wanted to pay for something substantial and put it in the post, give it to somebody. He, he wants his bank accounts to, to be at absolute zero when he dies, having spent all of it on worthwhile things so the last check, probably the one to pay for his funeral, just bounces. He's understood something about money. But Jesus goes a little bit further in verses 10 to 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, money, who will trust you with true riches? If you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See what he's saying? Money is like a little thing that God entrusts to you. It's his money. He doesn't just own 10% of what you have. He owns everything that you have, doesn't he? He's given it to you. He owns the whole world. It's all his. He's entrusted it to you. It's a, it's a little trust, whether that's $1,000 or a $1 million. It's only a small thing. He wants to see what you do with it. He wants to see whether you'll, you'll be trustworthy with it or not. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, the loophole. I found the loophole. I don't have to sell everything and give it all away. I can keep some of my money. Yes, you can. But listen to what Jesus says. It's on trust. What are you going to do with it? Will you, will you use money as if it's yours to keep as yours for yourself? Or will you see it as entrusted by God to use for the kingdom? That's the test. In verse 13, he makes it even harder. harder. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. He doesn't say, be careful, because if you try and do it, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky dance. He says, you cannot do it. Now, Jesus seems to have this thing about money and possessions, doesn't he? 
Sort of like every time money comes up in his whatever he says, it's big red danger, flashing signs everywhere. I mean, it couldn't possibly be true, could it, that we'd ever serve money? It couldn't possibly be true that our lives would be driven by wanting more and more possessions. The the things that money can buy, the power, the freedom, the thrills, the the things, the experiences, that doesn't describe Australia, does it? Not half. These two parables are both pictures of living as disciples while we wait for Jesus to return. How do we follow him when he's not here? And it's built on certainty. Luke wrote this for Theophilus, so in a very calm, considered way, he could read and consider the account of what Jesus had done, the extraordinary man that he was. Not the hype of big crowds, of music that might turn on his emotions, no. In the calm, probably of his own home, he could read, take to heart, think over, chew over this Jesus. He wanted Theophilus to know that Jesus is the one that he'd achieved all that God had promised through those thousands of years in the Old Testament, especially through his death and resurrection, that this world is now a different place with a different destiny, a different future. The kingdom of God had begun. Jesus had been given a kingdom, and one day he will come back as king. And being a disciple of Jesus means, firstly, believing that reality. In some ways, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Because I can't walk to a palace and see Jesus there sitting on a throne. I don't have that sort of physical feedback. He's not making appearances on television, um, showing that he's the king. But he is the king. That's what we've seen this week, isn't it? Each and every incident reported by Luke reveals Jesus and his kingdom. It's there everywhere you look. You can't miss it. Are you convinced? Are you certain? Are you coming to that certainty that Luke wanted Theophilus to have? That Jesus will return one day and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of the Son of God. And because of God's grace, all of us are given free entrance, a place in the kingdom, forgiven already, welcomed home. The assurance that we will be raised to be part of his kingdom forever. And Jesus says, if that is your future, If that is your situation now, if you're part of the kingdom, you've entered it, then let's live for the king. And that's what the parable of the minas is about, isn't it? In a sense, it's the only parable Jesus tells, as far as I can see, that tries to answer the question, what do I do with my life? There's not a question most people ask, in some sense. We, in Western uh, uh, affluent uh, uh, Australia, ask that question because we've got lots of options what to do with our life. But here is an answer, and it's a very helpful answer. What do I do with my life? How do I live my life now between Jesus' first and second coming, between the kingdom being established and its consummation? Well, we live as servants of a king, of the king. And we've all been given a minna. Now, it's hard to know exactly what that is, but it's what you have because you're in the kingdom. And we're to get on serving the king, putting the minna to work. I want you to notice a few things about this. The first is, there's incredible freedom. He doesn't say to each of the servants, here's the business you ought to start. And they don't get daily uh, updates from the king, giving them instructions for today. Today, go here, go there, do this, do that. No, the king's away. There's actually no more instructions, no more words from the king. Just go and put it to work. 
There's thousands of ways you could do that. And you're free to choose. There's no one right way. You don't all have to be pastors or missionaries in Beijing. We can't all do that. We, we'll do it all sorts of different ways, and you've got the freedom to choose how you'll do it. But the goal is really clear, isn't it? All have exactly the same goal, to increase the king's assets. People saved on the last day. And there's an expectation in that freedom that we'll be entrepreneurial. We'll, we'll make things happen. We'll be creative. We won't just sit back passively. But with the help of the Spirit, we'll put our energies into things. It'll take hard work, sustained effort, long-term effort probably in the same sort of direction. And there's no competitiveness in it. It's not as if the one who made the five was less than the one who made the ten. We're not to be competing with one another. We're, part, we're serving the same king together, all of us working as we're able. And we're using whatever Jesus gives us. We're not expected to use what we don't have. And it is true that we're different in our gifts and capacities, in our opportunities, in the resources that God puts at our disposal, in the money that's entrusted to us. It actually extends to everything about us that, that, that there's differences. Jesus wants us to use what he has given us. Use for what? For the salvation of others from all nations. Not just my friends here, the ones God has already put me in contact with. No, there's, there's the expectation of being entrepreneurial, of being creative, of looking outside my current circumstances. But friends, our vision is often so narrow, isn't it? We just tread the same path that our parents trod, that our siblings have trod, that our schoolmates have done. It's, it's just what's expected. It's, we're part of our culture and we just do what everyone else expects us to do. We just fit in and well, we're like sheep going, ba ba ba. tell me what to do. And fear grips us, afraid to do something different, to step off the beaten track in case that makes life difficult and people criticise us and maybe there might be a few disappointments. We, we go for safety, the safety of a, of a degree and a professional job because that surely is the safest place you can be. I want you to imagine for a minute, just, just imagine, let, let your mind go. Imagine if your goal in life was to see as many people as possible entering the kingdom so that on the last day you could rejoice with them. You could bawl your eyes out with joy that they were there, the ones you'd prayed for and, and shared with, the ones you'd given money towards. Imagine if that was your goal in life. How could you do it? How could you live your life if that was your goal? Well, you could work as an engineer, couldn't you? Seeking every day to share the gospel with your comrades at work and the, the, the clients that you met with and the people you caught the bus with to work and your neighbours in the, the, the neighbourhood you lived in. You'd work as an engineer, you'd look the same as everybody else, but your goal in being an engineer is quite different, isn't it? Why you're there each day will be radically different. Or as one graduate from UWA did, she got a job as one of those lollipop people. You know the, the crossings for children going to and from school? Hold up the lollipop, stop sign, they cross, put it down, hold up. Yeah, she did that. She got a job doing that even though she had a degree from UWA. You should be able to get a job anywhere with that, shouldn't you? Except in engineering. Um, why did she do it? Because she wanted to spend as much of a time as possible doing children's ministry in her church. So that's the sort of job she took because that enabled her to do it. You might start a business so that you can earn millions and millions of dollars and support thousands of missionaries in all sorts of places. Now, if that was your goal in life, mission would have to be on the table, wouldn't it? 
the gospel must go to all nations. Now, most people in Australia have access to the gospel. They can walk into a church in this suburb and hear something of Jesus. They can walk into even a, a secular bookshop and buy a Bible. They can go online and, and find it and, 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 and have access to the gospel. But in many, many countries in the world, people can't. In Yemen, vast tracts of India and China, across the Middle East, Russia, Mongolia, Indonesia, many, many parts of this world, billions of people know nothing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Missions has got to be on the table, doesn't it? And I reckon if we were thinking this way, you know, what could I do? If I use my imagination, what could I do to see people in the kingdom? We'd almost all be overseas, wouldn't we? It's hard to think that many of us would stay here. And then when you add Jesus saying, take up your cross, be willing to die in the process, well, that just opens up a whole lot of stuff I've probably closed my mind to because it's just too dangerous. One of my heroes is a guy called Count Zinzendorf. He was a Polish nobleman um, in the 1700s. And he, he, actually, he, he inherited his father's estate, this huge castle with grounds all around it. He was converted at age 20. And he set his heart on the mission uh, to take the gospel to the world. He started a little thing called the Order of the Mustard Seed. A mustard seed, tiny little thing. And, and he would gather Christians onto his estate, train them in mission, and then send them out to the, the four corners of the world. Some of the people who were part of that Order of the Mustard Seed realized that across in the, in the Americas, in the West Indies and into what we call the USA today, many, many slaves had been taken there. The slaves who worked out in the cane fields and the cotton fields, most of them had no access to the gospel. Some of their masters, who, their owners were Christians, but the gospel just can't cross that divide. It's, it's too difficult. So you know what some of them did? They sold themselves as slaves in order to reach the slaves. That meant they would spend the rest of their lives out in the field, hard manual labour. Once you'd sold yourself, you couldn't get yourself back out of slavery. It was for life till you died of exhaustion or something worse. To take the gospel. That's why the Negroes have Negro spirituals. Because they took the gospel to them. But remember the third servant. Remember him? His minna, he'd wrapped it up in his handkerchief or somewhere, buried in the backyard, got it out, gave it to Jesus. He didn't put it to work. He had an excuse, but it was a very lame excuse. What does that look like? Well, he had all the appearance of a servant. I presume in our case, he would look like a Christian. He goes to church, he does all the right things, or she does all the right things. But their energy, their, his heart was not in growing the king's assets. Presumably, it was just in doing his own thing, having his job, raising his family, traveling where he, where he felt like it. He got his ticket to eternal life. He was right. He could just get on with living for himself. Being a Christian, I guess, was what you could think of as a bit of a hobby on the side. You know what you have a hobby for? It's just something you enjoy a bit. Helps you fill up your leisure time. Gives you something to do when you've got nothing else to do. So you go to church, you keep up with the, the people there, keep some friendships, maybe do a little Bible study. But, well, friends, as I look around Australia, our churches are full of people like that, aren't they? That's what I see. I, I may be wrong. I, I don't know everyone's hearts, that's for sure. But I don't see people saying the kingdom... People being saved, that's what drives my life's decisions. But that's what these servants are doing. They've taken the minna, they've put it to work, they want to increase 
the master's assets. So I want you to imagine those first two servants waiting for the king, a deep love for the king flowing through their veins because they know they've been forgiven. And they're putting their heart and soul into growing his kingdom, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what it means to be part of the kingdom, to do it for life. Now, when you're 20, what you do with your life feels quite vague and ambiguous, I think. You could do all sorts of things. You're young, so many options are still open. It's not formed yet. Can I encourage you that if you hear what Jesus is saying, if you hear what the parable is saying, set your aim clearly now. And use your time while you're at uni to try and explore how you could use your life in the cause of the gospel. The 30, 50, 60 years that God might give you before you die or Jesus returns. And one of the helpful ways to do that is come to Challenge Conference. I'm going. It'll be a way to to just think about how could I use my life for Jesus? Why wouldn't you be there? But in the meantime, another uh, little exercise of imagination. Imagine that your goal for second semester this year was to grow the kingdom of Jesus by proclaiming repentance and forgiveness. Because let me warn you, if you won't do it now, you won't do it with the rest of your life. You're kidding yourself if you're thinking, oh, I, I, I won't live for the kingdom now. I, I won't have this goal, my goal, growing the kingdom of God, but I will in five years. Now, if you won't do it now, you won't do it then. You're just pulling the wool over your eyes. There's going to be 13 weeks of semester. There's more to life than uni, I, I know. But even just thinking about the 13 weeks of semester, how would living your life for the kingdom, putting your effort and energy into growing the kingdom of Jesus, seeing people there on the last day. How would you do it? What would you do? You could use Uncover, couldn't you? It's not the only way to do it. You're free to do it other ways. I reckon it's a great way to do it. I'm going to try. But if not, what will you do? How will you be a disciple? You won't do it by trampling through Palestine. You'll only do it by consistently giving yourself for exactly what Jesus gave himself for, saving the lost. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have begun your kingdom. You've received a kingship. You'll return one day as our king. Thank you for entrusting us with the work of proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. Please, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, give us the heart, the love, the persistence and the clarity of vision to do this for the rest of our lives. And we pray this for your sake. Amen.